From the cradle to the grave, you are measured against the yardstick of average, judged according to how closely you approximate it or how far you are able to exceed it. A modern conception of the average person is not a mathematical truth, but a human invention, created a century and a half ago by two European scientists, Quetelet and Gorton, to solve the social problems of their era. It's what Todd Rose speaks about in his bestseller, End of Average. Juliana Jackson has dug deep into the minds of data analytics leaders, people that work every day with measurements and metrics, to uncover what mental models they have built to help them understand the world. Join us while we focus on the stories of data analytics leaders and how they use mental models to challenge others to think differently by deviating from conventional approaches. So I'm here today with Tay uh, Johnson. Tay, how are you doing? I'm good. So I want to know how did you get in the measurement and analytics world? Because not one story sounds like the other one. It's actually very random. I went to school for business in undergrad. And then when I graduated, I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. So it wasn't like something where I was like, oh, this is what I want to do since I was a little kid. It was just like I was in a position, particularly a nonprofit, and I was doing so many different types of positions. At that time, I was working in HR, so I started to do a lot more reporting, and that's how I kind of realized, like, oh, I actually like this, and is this a career that I should pursue? So I kind of created my own position, and after that, they kind of moved me into what we call in the industry human capital analytics. So we did a lot of succession planning and things like that but on the employee level. So we would just track the skills that employees had, and if someone was to move around, could we slot them in to fill their role? So that's where I started. That's cool. I actually never looked into human capital analytics, but I think it gives you like a very different perspective of how to look at data and how to understand different patterns and trends when you would look like, you know, digital yes. analytics, like web analytics. It's a huge difference, right? I think, I think you know, like what you're making me think about right now is that when you say data and analytics, you just think about yes, web it's analytics. It's so many different like, levels I think our, Right? And I just think like we're just... Uh, super brainwashed in the idea like you know what like this this is actually so true i i really need to like this is a, a post that you need to make on social media right now because yeah for real i think we're like very caught up in the web analytics world and of course because it's sexier mm -hmm. and you know everyone is talking about it but yeah like look human capital analytics financial so analytics so, like there's so many so things much. yeah cool yeah like i think this is a conversation that needs to happen yes. more <laughs> So I saw that a big part of your articles, like as you write, so Tay writes, I saw that a lot of your content is related to cybersecurity. So for a person like me that's a noob when it comes to cybersecurity, I would just like to know, like, what did attract you to this part of the industry? Like, why do you choose to speak more about this versus, I don't know, web analytics? It's pretty straightforward in terms of how my career evolved over time. I used to be a former data analytics manager. So I was in charge of just working very closely with IT. So it wasn't just about managing the data in terms of reporting and what our clients wanted, like the business objectives. We also had to make sure that we, it was secure. So once I started to see that there was a security component to data analytics, I was like, oh, I think this is a natural step for me to do as a manager, because on the org level, I was already managing the entire ecosystem of data. 
no matter the team. So I was like, security is literally right next to that before you get into data engineering, which is, of course, I have experience in as well. So I felt like it was a natural progression with how the industry, of course, because of the pandemic, there has been a lot of cyber attacks. I felt like I can kind of merge this gap and my graduate degree is in that area as well. I had no idea and I know you for some time and I didn't know. I know you learned so much about me right now. (laughs) I'm excited because like we, we bonded a lot, you know, on the fact that we have similar interests and we laugh at the same, you know, silly stuff, but like, it's so awesome, you know, to move from that just friendship position and just get to talk to you and get to know you more professionally because I think there's a lot of parts to what makes us, you know, like what makes us, you know, as a personal life and, you know, as the humans that we are, I think we take a lot of stuff from our specializations or profession and we just like added to to ourselves like an added value. So I'm curious, like, what do you think about how security is perceived in the U.S. versus Europe with GDPR and everything? Because I hear you cannot really fuck around. Japan, all of them, they don't play that. (laughs) When it comes to user data, like, (laughs) you will get fined. Like, if you are a international company that has customers or data from those areas, it's a whole other process. So I think American companies are more lax for cybersecurity. As of recent, probably not so much because a lot of things... Systems that were what we call legacy systems have been around so long that they really didn't invest in cybersecurity like they should have. So now it's like everyone's rushing and as someone in the industry, I'm like taking my time because I'm like, no, y'all knew about these problems, what we call vulnerabilities for a long time when you see your reports. So don't rush me now because you are messed up. You have to wait in line with the rest of the queue. So that's what we're seeing. It's a very like reactive approach in America versus other countries that are very much proactive. You, you said the the right words. I was just talking about react, reactive versus proactive. And it's like such a huge difference. And I think when it comes to data also in the U.S., there should be like, a, in my, like from an outsider looking in, I see that there's not enough education for the regular person about, you know, how, you know, how they should you know, surf online or what type of data they should share or not. Like when, when um, I moved in with my husband, when, when he came to Romania and, you know, I was just looking like he would just put his card on every website and I'm like, yo, like, don't buy this shit. Like, this doesn't look good. You know, like this is not legit. So like nothing, you know, not everything that you see is safe because I don't, I think we, we were trying to buy his mom some flowers, but from a newest website, but it looks shady as fuck. Like it looked like it was done in the, I don't know, in the nineties. <laughs> it was like, it was, it was like, like just, it wasn't, res- oh no, what you talking about? Let me not even, yeah. <laughs> I know it's like, yeah, yeah. And I was telling my husband, yo, like, because he was like, no, nah, this looks legit. I'm like, no, it does not. <laughs> you know, like, this is not, that's, this is not what you want. But like, how is like, because you're, you know, you're living in the US, like, what's, what's happening? Actually, like, what's really happening to educate, you know, like, regular users or consumers about, you know, how to be safe online? Yeah, like a lot of it is what companies are doing internally. Now they're releasing their own what we call white papers. So their own research teams internally are hired to put out content that goes to their subscribers or their members or users. So it's like an approach where we're not just educating the masses, we're also educating people who use our products so that it's internal and external. So I've been noticing a lot of companies in the US, now they have researchers that work for them that will focus on cybersecurity and other areas of data and analytics because they want to educate the public on not just how to use their tool, but also other tools as well. 
it makes sense and I think it should go like that. I think, you know, there's more, I think like right now we're more vulnerable than ever online and like anyone can copy your account and anyone can, you know, they can just, you know, fuck you over or else on the spot and from all parts. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, I still feel like we're not putting enough time to educate ourselves because look at how many fraud is happening or how people are falling into traps. And I think COVID kind of speed up all that because, you know, like it made it for some people to be like the first time they are online or they're using, you know, like, you know, checkouts online and they're surfing the web for the first time, people that were not using it before because they had to stay at home. So they had to, you know, adapt. So I think it's like much more vulnerability when it comes to, you know, uh, being safe when you, when you surf online. So like you are a huge, huge supporter of women in general, but also, you know, communities like you either always speak at an event or you're mentoring young women getting into the measurement world. So I want to know like what motivates you to do that? Like, why are you doing that instead of watching Netflix or, (laughs) you know, you know, like the circle on Netflix, like Juliana? (laughs) I think for me, it just started out from when I first got started many, many years ago in data and analytics, I didn't know too many women, particularly women of color and especially black women in data. So I was like the only one talking to actual like engineers in the field of saying like, hey, what systems you use? And I went through a boot camp to kind of learn how to code, which I do know how to code. And me being in a lot of spaces where I was the only one, it kind of motivated me to create more of a brand image that I'm actually here and I've been here a while. And I'm still, even to this day, I'm like seven plus years in the game. I'm the only woman in a lot of spaces, the only woman of color. And I'm definitely the only black woman. I have yet to work alongside another black woman on any of my technical teams. So that says a lot. And I'm from, you know, a very diverse city in New York. So it's like, we have a lot of different people. There's no real excuse for it to be that lack of a diversity um, on paper. So I feel like that was my main motivation for wanting to mentor women, because I know there's not a lot of us who move up through the ranks. That's a hundred percent. And as much as we try to act like the world is not as, you know, horrible as it is, the reality is that women, especially black women or women of color are not treated fairly at all. And, um, they don't get the same type of journey into this world as a white woman would, you know, would have. And actually I want to learn more about what was your experience and what, you know, like exactly like what are you, the measures that you're trying to, to take through your actions to basically give, you know, other uh, black women or women of color uh, to have a better experience, you know, getting up there. Like, I know I've seen so much of, you know, your work on social media and you're always, you know, trying to 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 do, you know, like this coaching sessions or mentoring. And I know you just posted the other day that you're going to mentor a few uh, women. So tell me yeah. about that. So how I usually do it is more or less giving out resources. So if I have anything like an article or just something that I know from my professional network, I always share it. So to be informal where I'll like reach out to someone on LinkedIn or the various Slack groups that I'm a part of, where I'm just like, hey, I saw this and I thought of you. So I'm actually paying attention to what other people post or what groups that they're a part of. And then I'm having these, what you would call networking opportunities where I'm like, hey, this is how I can support you just to say, see my face. And then once you continue to do that, people kind of will ping me and like tag me and stuff because they know like, oh, she actually spoke to me and she actually does have all these years of experience in this particular area. So they kind of will kind of, if you give and take, it's like equal balance. But I'm the type of person I don't give in order to receive. I just give just to give. And I don't automatically think you have to like send me something back. So I think 
when it comes to mentoring, that's how I lead from that lens of like, I'm just giving you the stuff so you could be good. I'm fine either way. Yeah, no, and I, I, I like that. And I think, as sad as it sounds, I think you're the only black woman that I know in analytics. And it's sad as fuck. No, 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 it is. I think I only know like, like three. All the time I had like professionally that I had conversations with, we never worked together, but I'm like, I've seen their face a lot. And I think it's like three of them. I'm trying to think about black men as well in analytics. And this is like a raw version of the thought process. Like I want everyone that's listening right now to actually take this shit in and think for a second the fact that this world is not as diverse as we are trying to, you know, to to make it sound. I remember I read this tweet from, um, his name is Will Reynolds, and this guy runs uh, Sear. He's a black man. And he said something that I loved so much. He said basically that, stop inviting me to your conference because I don't want to be your token black person. And I think, and I want to ask you, because I told you I'm coming with the with the, with the spices today. <laughs> this is a very honest conversation. I want to ask you, did you ever feel like you were invited as the token black person to a conference? Hell yeah. And I'm not going to lie because it's, it's two parts. A, number one, I think that I look decent. And I look relatively young for my actual age. So it's, it's two parts. You know, we have to talk about it because even in the world of tech, how you look plays a part too. So because I didn't look like the stereotypical nerd, what someone would think an intelligent woman looks like, they'd be like, oh, she's approachable. Now we got to understand why I look approachable versus someone else. We're not even going to get into colorism and all of that. And then physical beauty because I'm, you know, thin and I have a, some type of a shape. People kind of use me as an, I wouldn't say object, but like this, like a doll. Like, oh, she looks great in this headshot. Let's ping her. But I'm like, no, I actually have a brain. So I'm here to talk about my skills. I'm not just here to look good on your flyer. I'm here to actually talk technical, like the other people on the panel or at the event. <laughs> so it would be like yeah, this weird, like, yeah. you're focusing on my hair, my skin, and my figure, and my nails, and my outfit. I'm just like, girl, I'm here for something else. So I would notice yeah. that even in those technical spaces, people mean well, but it's like, why am I really here? What are we really talking about? Like, do you really want to hear what I have to say when it comes to my mind? Or is it something else? Let's be honest. So it was more or less that type of tokenism. And then also just, yeah, I was the only Black people in a lot of panels, and it got to the point where... I was just like, I have to start declining stuff because I'm starting to notice that I'm the only one. And you can see, you can scroll so far and you will not see another person of color or another black person. Yeah. It sucks, but it's real. And even in marketing, like the more I think about it, even in product, and I just got pissed off at some point. I don't know who was messaging me and asking, you know, to, um, asking to, to hire someone for SEO. And I have a very good friend that happens to be black. Hi, Dreshan, if you're listening to this. And Dreshan is like one of the biggest and dopest, you know, like smartest SEO people. But like that person was just saying to me that, oh, I'm just trying to hire to get more diversity. And I know you're friends with a lot of people. And I'm like, hell fucking no. You know, like I'm not going to, you know, introduce you to my friend. That's a great professional. I'm not going to put my friend just because you want to hit your numbers on your diversity scores in the company. So I just think like since uh, the unfortunate event with George Floyd happened, I think a lot of companies just took the whole rhetoric and situation very wrong. 
And instead of disciplining themselves and educating themselves and then going outside and trying to be allies or whatever, I think they just took the whole, you know, the whole situation wrong. And I actually want to talk to you about this. And, you know, I'm straightforward and probably this is going to be uncomfortable for some listeners. And I'm not sorry for that. Maybe some of you guys should really be uncomfortable right now. I want, I want to ask you, like, how would you define white privilege? Oh, that was hot. I was, I felt it in my core. You said, I was like, that's the question. <laughs> that's the question. Oh, okay. yeah. Honest. I want to talk about yeah. it. Listen, to me, white privilege is, is a state of mind. And it also is just something that you're born with. So it's just, particularly not just in America, I feel like anywhere in the world, people that come from a certain legacy and they're held to a certain standard that other people aren't held up to, that defines white privilege. And also the abuse of that is shown in everyday actions. Like good example with us being on the call and I have my camera on. There's a lot of client meetings where I don't put my camera on and it's a reason why. When they see sometimes me being a woman, relatively young looking woman, and then I'm black, I notice that people will respond to me a certain kind of way. That is what someone that has white privilege does not have to do or think about each day because of how they're going to be perceived because people don't necessarily think of them in that particular way as they would a black woman like myself in a technical position in a senior role. So these are the things, little nuances that I would have to do that if I was white, I probably wouldn't have to do. I could just put my headshot on everything and not have to think about it. Like, oh, I can get the job. I can promote my brand. People are going to reach out to me. They're not going to second guess my skill set. They're not going to second guess how smart I am. They're not going to overly critique how I write. That's something. Yeah, it's Most a cultural life. thing. So it's something I'm not saying all white people are like that, but they're born with that privilege that I was not born with. And it exists before they even got here. That is legacy generation after generation of generation of us being on this land. Yeah, a hundred percent. And of course, you know, like no one is generalizing that, you know, people that are white are bad. Of course not, you know, like they're so, you know, like in every culture or every race, you know, like you just have to not generalize because a lot of people generalize something about black people or other people generalize something about Romanians and, you know, like, same thing happens for all races. And I don't think, you know, like, we, not me or they are not saying that everyone has this privilege or, like, carries themselves with privilege. But it's a very serious problem that happens and is not addressed enough in marketing or analytics because it's a taboo type of topic that people don't really have the courage to talk about because talking about it makes you... Um, aggressive if that's the word you know you know what i mean yes and yes. like go the ahead because i know you want to say we already, black women equal aggressive yeah. we already know having any opinion yeah. as a black woman equals aggressive like you supposed to just be quiet aggressive. and not say nothing and then it's like oh that's great tay we loved your idea and i'm like i didn't even say one word <laughs> tay was great we had a great meeting obviously like i was muted the entire time well, no one was talking and you have to catch the, read the subtle between the lines of people when they give you feedback and slap you'll be like how was that a great meeting I didn't say nothing <laughs> but yeah oh my god no but honestly I think 
I know, I know this is like, as you know, half of my family is black and I know very well the the words that are used. And I think people do not understand how much words carry, you know, and how much, you know, the black woman in tech or in marketing or whatever, whatever uh, position she is, she is like stigmatized for some things that she didn't even said, she didn't even do. But it's just like people that come with their preconceptions about how they should behave and that shit makes them awkward as fuck. Because I think a lot of people, if they would shut the fuck up, they would just do better. Like the most important thing, if you don't know what to do, don't do nothing. I heard this concept of allyship and I hope I'm pronouncing it right. So from where I stand here in Romania and, you know, looking outside, I just feel like this allyship uh, concept is just like going to extreme to the point that it just becomes very performative, right? Most of it because, you know, like between you and me, people want that invite to the cookout so badly. The, and the thing is, it's not even just the but, invite. They just want the acknowledgement that you know they're there. And we're, we're acknowledgement. Petty. Black folks like myself, we're very petty when we realize that someone wants our attention if they're not black. Like we know they want us to like look at them or like like their stuff or promote love. And it's just like, can you just exist and be okay with not being the center of attention? Because I'm on for that. Like I can exist and be okay. But what's the mental model <laughs> behind this? Like what no, honestly, like what's the mental model? Like if you are not part of a group, and this is just me being super geeky about the topic, because I like psychology and I like, you know, behavioral science. It's the culture, excuse my name is in the background. It's the culture of black people. We were in America and parts of the world, we were used to be on display. And there's something about our hair, our skin, figure, whatever it is. There's something about us. We call it the juice. We call it the black girl magic. But it's something about black skin that people gravitate to. And clearly from your experience, you're going to, you have a child that's, you know, half. So you're going to have to deal with that when they get older to see how their physical makeup is going to be. People, again, we have been fetishized. We have been abused. We have been put on, again, display as property. So you got to understand, even if it's it's not happening how it was for our ancestors, that's still built into how people view us. They don't respect our space. They touch our hair when we walk by. What does that remind you of? If you look in history, that's what we were going through. Our ancestors had to deal with that. Not having their physical space yeah. be respected. Not having their voices be heard. All of that, if you look at it, it's so similar to what I just described. Yeah, you're you're right. No, but it, it's it's true, and it's like the 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 black culture has been so emptied that it makes it it makes it like how can I say this? Like people feel entitled to it because it was shared enough. It and, was never um, sacred. It was never sacred. I, black people in our culture was never no. sacred once it was colonized. So that's the problem. When it became everybody, we became, you know, someone overseeing us. Like we were owned. That's when we lost it. Now you see a lot of black spaces where we're trying to, with the allyship, we don't like performative allyship. We're doing that because we're trying to protect our spaces. Our ancestors didn't have that ability, but we can do that now. We can try to be like, hey, if you want to be part of this conversation, you got to have some skin in the game. 
I got to know what work you do. Let me look at what your organization is doing. Who's funding your projects? We go through all of these criteria before we're just like, you're part of the cookout. And we have to do that more often. Yeah. I just think like, again, like on social media, social media has became such a toxic environment for a lot of people, you know, I think because you don't have a personal purpose, you know, as a human. I just think people are looking to get validation from groups of people or get validation for how they feel with themselves. And from my perspective, I think allyship, and I'm not saying everybody, like I'm not generalizing right now. I'm speaking from the experience, you know, that I see and I just want to know how you feel because you obviously know better than me and I will never have your experience or know better than you. It's just, I feel like, even if with this, with allyship like this, or even it, what happens with wars or with COVID, with like every catastrophe or every problem as we have as a society, I just feel like we're just so obsessed with creating an image of perfection of ourselves that we're just looking for validation from whoever is willing to give it. And Sometimes it becomes so toxic that you end up hurting the people that you're trying to support with your behavior. And I don't know, like, what are your thoughts about yeah, that? Yeah, it's, I like to call it, and I think it's, it's something where I reference it as the popcorn effect. We like instant gratification. We live in a society where we want results now. We want attention now. We want money now. We don't understand how the work that we have to do in order to achieve money is a part of the process. Or we don't understand us putting ourselves out there, like me wanting to put my brand out there. There's still going to be things that come with that. We see things from like rose colored glasses of like now, now, now. So having the reality of like, actually what I'm doing can impact harm on someone else. That's two totally different things that people don't necessarily think about. So I think when it comes to people being more active during the pandemic because of what was going on in the world, being on these apps and all of this stuff that I talk about in cybersecurity, I see it on the back end of like, we have to have some real conversations about how people are presenting themselves on the internet, what information they're putting out there, and also how they can better track and monitor what they're doing. So this is related to like families, organizations, anything like that, because people were just jumping into the seas pool of conversations and they were they were showing their behind. Let's call it spade a spade. They're showing their ass, the employer was seeing stuff, they were talking off the cuff. And I'm like, what do you know? <laughs> this could literally be traced back so quickly or it could just be saved or screenshot. Nobody was safe. And I, I think that's what I noticed is that people wanted to, they wanted the human connection, but they weren't being mindful enough about that human connection. Yeah, I like that. I think I think it's just like though I was talking to uh, to Tim Wilson, he's a senior uh, analytics director at Search Discovery, one of the coolest guys to talk about R and marketing and uh, analytics and we're talking about the brains, you know, that we structurally have as humans, physiologically we have and I was asking him that if he thinks that our brain as it is, you know, historically you know, naturally is ready for the type of information that we have right now and everything that's going on. Because I don't think we never thought 
that the world is going to be so trafficked by information and like it's going to be so crowded and this volume of information that just like you open your phone and you just have look right now I have like all these notifications on my phone and this is just information and imagine like we're doing this every five ten minutes or every hour when we check our phones and it's like I'm thinking like where is the space for that mindfulness that you're talking about like how can you be mindful in relationships if you're like constantly constantly reaving in like this memory game where you're just seeing shit and you're supposed to keep them in your uh, in your long-term memory like how do we do that yeah i think because everything is i hate to say is more tech driven now everything is is based on some developer engineer company who puts out these products that we consume this is the yeah a lot of the responsibility is turned more into tech because we have the tools in order to create these these things that you're seeing. So your phone, for example, whoever's the manufacturer for that phone, whoever designs it, they can create functions in there to give you alerts or reminders of like, hey, this is what we call your screen time. That's what we have as a feature now. So you know this is how long you're doing yeah. this. We have it for headphones as well, audio technology, where it tells you if it's too loud of your volume that you're listening to your music at, at some point it tells you what time you're supposed to lower it. Because they don't want you to go deaf mm-hmm. at whatever age. Yeah. And they can create technology algorithms to pr- you know, predict all of that. So technology can be used for good and it can be used for bad. The good element is that it's kind of telling you, hey, you can consume this at your own risk. But we're going to tell you what this can actually do. And I think that's more of an ethical tech. And that's actually a movement where there's a lot of companies who build tools that are ethical, that are accessible for everyone, yeah. that make sure it fills in people who are artistic, people who like have different things going on that you probably are like there's not just one user so it's taking more of the responsibility on what are we really putting out there for people to consume before we probably didn't have these conversations but now i see more often in tech the spaces that i'm in we having this conversation about okay we can put this out but at what cost you know like uh, it's something that i've been thinking about lately and ever since i saw that metaverse uh, announcement from facebook with what's his name that he he who shall not be named. I was thinking that everything, I mean, like obviously from, I'm a nerd and from a technical perspective, I love Web3 and what's going on. And I love all the movements and the wild, wild west. And, you know, like I like the idea of what's happening. But at the same time, I feel like everything that's going on with the metaverse and with all this, I guess, alternative reality in, you know, online, I just feel like it's meant to move people's attention from their family or from their land, you know, like the basic needs of a human, which is land, which is food, which is, you know, their family. And like, it's like such a distraction and it hooks you so good that you forget, you know, like, hey, you know, like I got kids to feed, you know, (laughs) I I, got to wash my ass today, (laughs) like stuff like that. And I think seriously, I really think that we are definitely like transcending from, you know, like being analog and being in this reality that we are towards another reality that we are not ready for because we were not trained as humans to live in that reality. We're trained to live this one. Maybe our kids, because they are born into the digital world, they will have the right training per se, but we are not ready for that. Like we were, you know, we grew up, with our, you know, keys around yes, our necks and running yeah. around and play. Hell yeah. That's that, that, that's how it is. And like, 
that it, it just makes you think, you know, like what's, what's the, probably I am not going to see it, but like, it really makes you think like how the world is, you know, moving from focusing on your basic needs as human versus, you know, needing this the fucking a NFT. part of it, which I have no skin in the game when it comes to that type of technology. I'm actually against that type of technology. I personally don't use it just for my own yeah. sanity. I don't like the notifications on my phone. I don't like all those pop-ups. I don't like none of that. Like I'm one of those people. I work in technology yeah. so much that when I'm not working, I do not want to be on a device. Like it is that I need a separation of actual reality. So I made sure very yeah. early on in my career when I transitioned into tech that I wanted to have it where I focus on what I need to focus on. I do my training, I create stuff, but then I it is an off switch for me. So it's not like I eat, breathe, crap, yeah. technology. I'm not one of those people. Like, I'm just, I, I appreciate the advancements that we've made in technology, but I do understand that there is still harmful tech that is out there that we, I, in my opinion, we don't need. It's like, why? Why do we need this product? What is it really solving any of the world changes that we need? And if the answer is, I don't know, or no, then I'm just like, why do I need this? Why do I need to invest in this? So I don't just believe in just creating just to create. I want to have something that's more sustainable. And those are the types of projects that I'm actually a part of. Like I, I only work on apps that I know are going to help the world become better and not just have an app just to say I can build an app. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's, it's like very deep, you know, what's going on. And so I want to ask you, because we're, you know, getting close to the, to the, to the second part of the interview, I just, I would like to know, like, through your specialization, what are some mental models that you, you know, develop that help you deal with, with the world better? I have to say for me, I always, one of the first things I think about whenever I'm like interacting with other people, I'm building any type of solution. I always think about what is my end goal? Mm -hmm. What am I trying to achieve? So that's usually where I start from. So I go from the basis of what am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to deliver on? And then I also flip it and I think about what will this benefit? Will it benefit the organization? Would it benefit a particular industry? Would it particularly benefit a user, specific type of user? And sometimes those answers to those questions can kind of be looped and sometimes they're not. I might not even be able to answer them but when I started to use more and more technology and taking that ownership of what I was actually creating, I started to think about the human element of it. Where could I not have everything just be automatically automated, but also think about the human approach? So human-centered design is, yeah. is really what I started to study and focus on. And it helped me understand like, okay, I can create an entire algorithm to just not talk to a human throughout the entire product life cycle. But I don't want to do that because I know there might be some questions I don't know all the answers to. So if I'm coding something, I'm only going to code in certain questions and answers that you would end up seeing. If I don't know all the answers to those questions, you as an end user, I'm leaving a space for you not to communicate what you actually want. So when it comes to engineering, People need to be really mindful of you don't know everything, no matter how smart we are, there's still a, a human component to your end user that should be factored in. So that's literally what I, like I focus it. on. It's kind of like turning engineering on its head of saying like, yeah, I'm so smart, so great. Let me just go ahead and rush and build this tool to saying, you know, let me take a step back and slow down. Let me talk to other people in different disciplines and areas 
So I can hear like, what are you actually hearing? You know, what do customers actually say? What are people talking about? Showing up and having conversations one-on-one with people and hearing their perspective instead of just rushing off of my own understanding. Every, every person that came in the podcast kind of said the same thing as you're saying right now. Like I see it's a common thing amongst uh, y'all because obviously you guys have so much experience and, you know, been seeing this around a lot and not one of the guests that I had so far, you know, everyone was just basically saying that being humble about what you know and open to hear different types of perspective is what pushes them further. So I kind of see like a pattern amongst the other, like you, like I ask this question a lot and most of it is like around the same thing. And this is, this is really interesting to me. Cool. So I want to, I want to ask you something like <laughs> so a funny analytics question. Like, what do you think that, you know, what do you think about um, what being data driven really means? Cause like, let's scratch the work side of it, you know, like, and only think about real life. What do you think being data-driven as a human means versus, you know, analytics yeah, world? I think being data-driven is understanding, I'm going to say KPIs, but understanding what you're trying to accomplish and keeping really good documentation. Because really that's what data is used for when you say you're a data-driven org is to have like processes in place and good documentation of what you're trying to deliver on. That's really what it is on the org level. So I think personally... I know I keep really good notes and I have like all my goals written out at least a season or particular month that I want to achieve it by. So I think on a personal level, yeah, yeah that's how I'm more or less just data driven. I just keep really good notes and I know everything I want is written down <laughs> with a timeline. Do you think, be- do you think because you are, you, you, you know, you're experienced in speaking to machines, do you think that's going to, that makes your life easier because you're just using only the right information to move further i think yeah i'm a little i'm seasoned in that i know what to ask to get the answer that i want from people because the years of me people not knowing what data roles are i had to be really proactive about my approach when i do talk to people like i can tell you exactly how you use your system and what information you have access to to form my questions so when i talk to people outside of work I use that same approach. Like, I know you probably saw this much. So if I'm going to ask you this question to get your opinion on this. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Do you think that people are more capable of original thought now versus before? And why? Oh, my gosh. I'm here with the... with the. <laughs> pum, 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 pum. <laughs> I, think, I think I have one of those sounds. Wait. <laughs> I think, girl. Oh my god, this is tough. <laughs> there you go. I stopped. No, it. I was gonna just simply say, like, I think honestly, it's a flip. I think people are more sustainable to group think now than they were in the past because of technology and because of like things going viral and influencers <laughs> and that type of. You're not cool if you don't have a certain amount of followers or stuff that I just personally don't get into. But I, I feel like, yeah, people are more groupthink oriented now than they were when I was a kid. Like we didn't have all this stuff on the internet. I had actual books. I went outside to play on my bike. Like I don't see that anymore. It, it's very rare. Do I see people like outside playing double Dutch? Like people don't do, kids don't play like that anymore. So I think, 
yeah what we define as cool and <laughs> hip and, and down is like uh-uh. I, I must be old and i'm not even that old <laughs> yeah like for instance when i talk to my son sometimes and he comes and asks me or shows me some stuff and i don't like it then he's like okay boomer i'm like wow <laughs> he called you a boomer oh my goodness it's like those Oh my God! Yeah, oh, he needs to learn different variations not... of groups of us. <laughs> yeah, my my son is like very straightforward and just like he just says what he thinks, which is fine, but not all the time. Like I'm trying to you polish him, him up a little bit, little bit. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, just polish him up. Not, but I'm trying to let him, you know, explore himself and like have the freedom. Like I guess the way I was brought up is like I was never, you know, allowed to speak my mind. Like. I think, you know, like the, maybe like my generation was the generation where you don't, you know, say nothing to your parents because you might get your ass whooped. So you just, just kind of agree with everything. And I'm glad that, you know, I don't want to perpetuate that. And I think that me allowing him to be himself is going to unlock a lot of blessings in his life because he navigates his childhood with a lot of um, innocence. I think it's really cool. Just a freedom of expression. And freedom. Yeah. And he researches his own shit. (laughs) Like uh, today, I know, but I want to tell this story because it's funny. I always tell him to go and take a bath, obviously, like a parent, just just wash your ass. That's That's how I say it. And again, I hope nobody's bothered, but I really do use that as a joke to my son it's some like it's a it's a house family joke that we have like wash your ass and um he came comes to me to i was working and he comes with this youtube video and says look i saw on youtube that you shouldn't wash your your body too much because you're gonna lose all your essential oils and i'm like hell no (laughs) if you don't go and put soap on you (laughs) but like see they they, like they just do research right now or they show you if like as i remember he said like he saw this doctor on youtube and showed me that you know like that doctor said that video games are good and i know video games are good actually they are but like you don't need to come and show me a doctor. And I was like, oh my! It's like I can put a white coat right now and say I'm a doctor on YouTube and say like I'm Doctor Juliana and just start reading some shit about you know being a surgeon. So like, it's good for the freedom is good, but at the same time you just have to make sure that you're protecting them because there's so much information that is false, and because they are so young when it comes to kids they are not capable yet of discerning the bullshit from the reality. So I think it's like very challenging as a parent to have kids in this day and age. I don't know. So you're lucky. I I, I need all the blessings of raising these new age children. I couldn't. (laughs) Trust me, there's some days where I can't either. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just trying, you know, to, to, to take it one day at a time. So I have my last question for you. As you know, that this podcast is a a lot about exploring your unique self and just having conversations with people about individuality. So as a person that works with measurements and metrics all the time, I want to ask you, like, what do you think about averages? What do you think about how people look to define themselves to groups? Because we were just talking about that but not exploring their own outliers or their own uniqueness. They just prefer to, you know, like it's more appealing for them to be just a part of a group, being their own person instead of being the attribute of a group. I think it all depends on the individual, depends on their personality makeup. 
some people have more of an individualistic type mentality where even with their projects, they prefer to just have a scope of work where they get to do a portion of the work and then it goes down the line, like an assembly line. And then you have others where they like to do brainstorming yeah. sessions where you're bringing up these ideas together and executing them and then running off. So it really depends on a case by case personality level. I noticed that when it comes to fitting into the average of a group versus more of an individual mindset. And I don't think that one is better than the other, but I do feel like it's both of them have pros and cons. If you have more of the approach of wanting to be part of a group, like the average of something, you're pretty much factored in based on that group. If you're more of an individual, your downfall will be based on, do you have enough of the information? Do you have enough of something that can kind of get or something that you can like balance something against off of it? So it's like pros and cons on each. And then on a personal level, I just personally feel like for me, I'm more of an individualist because of the type of industry I'm in. That's just, if you can't do the job, people will know. And it doesn't matter what the group is doing. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, you have to go. Whereas other industries, that's not how their teams work. That's not how the functions are set up. So I think it's, again, it's personality. Yeah, you can, can get, get away, away with, with coasting in a lot of other industries. Whereas in tech, we know who doesn't know something when they join our team. Because we'll ask certain questions yeah. and you'll be like, why didn't you do this? And he'll be like, don't even answer. I know because you don't know. That's next. <laughs> who can actually get the job done? Tag them in Slack Pizza. We will literally work around you. Like you was never on the team. Like engineering is nothing to play with. <laughs> so I told people, you want to work in tech? You have to deliver. You can't move along. <laughs> yeah, you cannot have... No, but it's real. I'm thinking because like I work in a very technical role and I've been telling you, you you don't even see me on social media anymore. Like I'm a ghost on social media. I used to be on social media all the time when I was just doing marketing. But now that I went back to technical marketing and doing like, you know, editing product variations in the back end, trying to figure out how to use short cords on WordPress to show something like I Google half of my yeah. job. Like I Google. <laughs> Everyone Googles, like, just, let's get it right. Listen, like, Stack Overflow Googles, is, is the number like, one seller in engineering. Like, we will Stack Overflow every question we have in code. Like, we will. We will. Yeah, but, like, the the trick is that you have to be smart enough to know what to search for. And that's the difference. Because there's nothing wrong with Googling. There's nothing wrong with researching and finding stuff. But being smart enough, that's the that's the secret. That like, and speed, to look. So, too, I think that's... Because you have, like, you can... Yeah. So you can't take forever to be in your own head about stuff. Like you have to make some type of movement because again, we, yeah. And decision making action needs to come with that thinking. (laughs) And critical thinking a lot. Like you have to doubt everything. Like if someone tells you something, you have to be like, man, this might not be just that. So before I go in, let me just see this. (laughs) Let me see. (laughs) Let me see. Yeah, like put your glasses on. Let me figure this out. What are we looking at? Like you got to catch people sometimes. (laughs) You should you should post a meme about Mm -hmm. that because it's funny. (laughs) If you don't do it, I will because it's funny. So, hey, tell me where can people find you, follow you, and read you. I'm on LinkedIn, and then I have like my company page, Tay Johnson Co. And then I'm also on Instagram as well with the same name, and on Twitter too. I'm so happy that you took time to talk to me today. As you can see, it went, uh, it, it nighttime came <laughs> here and I'm recording a podcast without the lights on and I'm starting to disappear from the screen slowly. 
nothing helps me right now. It's just like, it's one of those. But really, really happy to uh, talk to you today. This was awesome. Thank you everyone for listening. And uh, if you have any questions for me or for her, just reach out or leave a comment on YouTube. And I hope this was eye-opening for a lot of people. So thank you, Tay.